You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. Uh, who enjoyed last week with uh, Andrew Ude? I was going to call him Pastor Andrew, but I might be too prophetic for this morning. He did an incredible job. Um, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Just opening up the context of the book of Philippians to us uh, in a way that just brought such an incredible light to who were the Philippians? What was life like for the, the, the people in Philippi at the time that Paul wrote this letter? Uh, he, he unpacked what just so much about a letter. Uh, we so often just go, go to Scripture and we see it as chapter and verse and we, we lose some of the benefit of the context in which it was written in. Um, and, and one of the things that I love that Andrew did last week was, was he, he taught us this idea of digging into Scripture to find out what it meant to them. So what does it mean to us? And out of that then, what might it apply to me? I think so often in Scripture, we approach it as we go for the me first, and we miss some of the depth that might be added when we consider that it was written to a them. Okay, and so we should interpret it as an us. I think it's why Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father, may our forgive us our sins. There is, there is a community sense when it comes to Scripture that we cannot get around. We cannot make our Christian journey too individualised or else we actually undermine some of the true power of the principles that we see in the Word of God that are written and attributed to communities. And Andrew did a great job in talking about the, the realities that might affect us as a community out of what he was reading in the first section of Philippians. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to drive straight into uh, Philippians chapter 1. Uh, and I'm gonna, uh, the section I'm going to concentrate on is from 15 to 30, but I want to start at 12 to give you a bit of context. Is that okay this morning? And just to save a bit of time, I'm not actually going to read all 18 verses. Is that all right? Yeah, we're going to unpack them as we go, but I'm going to save myself a bit of time at the top and not read all 18. So, so I'm just going to pray and then we're going to dive into the Word. So let's, let's bow our heads for a second and ask God to, to speak to us. Father, thank you so much that this is your Word. I thank you that your Spirit is the Spirit of revelation. And God, I just pray this morning that your Spirit would move in this place, that it would just bring to life things in your word that we need to consider in our lives. God, that you would speak to us, that you'd feed our soul this morning, that you would challenge us, shape us, mature us, Father. God, we want to lift up our Northwest campus. God, let there be just an incredible sense of your presence in that place. We pray for our senior ministers, Pastor Keith and Janet, as they continue to have some rest Uh, and rejuvenation, we pray that you would be ministering to them and speaking to them. And Lord, right now, as the the season begins, we lift up our mighty Newcastle Jets, believing for a great season in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. We had a bye this week, in case you're wondering how the result was. Um, 
But next week, our first game, come on, it's going to be awesome. So, we have a number of people here this morning who are married, a number of people who aren't. I'm going to tell a marriage story this morning. Uh, Rachel and I were married 10 years this week, uh, which is exciting for us. For some of you, that's a drop in the ocean. Uh, but it, we, we, we're quite impressed that we made it 10 years. Um, and it has been an incredible 10 years. Uh, as many of you would know, uh, marriage has a way of getting in and improving you as an individual. Um, and certainly, I am incredibly thankful that, that I asked God who I should marry um, because he has used my incredible wife in ways that I never could have dreamed to help me be the, the best version of myself. Um, and I hope that I have done similar for you, darling. <laughs> Absolutely. Come on. Amen. But I remember when I asked Rach to marry me, right, uh, as the marriage proposal story is always fun. And, and in today's day and age, we have seen this kind of extravagance come onto marriage proposals. I've, I've asked people who have been married sort of 30, 40, 50 years, and they're like, yeah, we never used to do some of the things that people do these days. You know, we, we just, it was just, it was quite simple, and it was beautiful, but simple, and none of the extravagance that goes with it. But I think it's interesting when you kind of analyse people's marriage proposals. So I, um, I remember I picked Rach up in the morning and uh, I'm, I'm a words guy. You would know that by now. And, and so I had written her like a series of letters um, and I had planned I'm going to give them to her at like the specific times of the day. And I took her out to, um, to Woolworths. I was very romantic. Yeah, um, but we, we had to buy, obviously, stuff to go on a picnic because you can't ask someone to marry you without, without picnic food. Um, and, and so we went to Woolworths. We, we picked all these beautiful things, and then we went for a walk along the beach, and I gave her the first letter because the beach had always been a bit of a special place for us and just told her how much I, I, I loved you know, our relationship and those sorts of things. And the, the letters kind of progressed in, in seriousness, and I like to think they progressed in romance, but you'd, you'd have to ask Rachel her opinion on that. Um, and then, and then uh, eventually we got to a really special place in her life. Uh, I was down at, at Greenpoint Reserve uh, near Belmont and I had the last letter and it, it said all this lovely stuff. And, and um, at the end of it, it basically said, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And she looked up, I was on one knee and I had the ring and she said, yes, thank you, Jesus. But I had initially had far more extravagant plans. I mean, there was a lovely marriage proposal, but when we hear the stories of some of the other people in our world, uh, the extravagance of my marriage proposal kind of pales into more mediocrity. Thank goodness that marriage is far more about the life beyond the proposal, not just the proposal. Um, and some young people would do better to put the thousands of dollars they're going to spend on the marriage proposal into an account to buy a home for your marriage rather than the question to get married. I know that young adults, we're talking about money tonight. It's going to be awesome. Um, but there's a, little, there's a free one for you. But what we see in people's marriage proposals is their motivating factor. We see their motivating factor. And, and to be honest, my motivating factor was time. Right? I was more motivated by a timeline than I was perhaps by a sense of extravagance, which is rare for me because that, that does come out from time to time. You see, for me, I was a school teacher at the time. It was my first year, and so uh, I knew that I had to be, our wedding had to be, if I wanted a, a, a honeymoon, which is a key part of getting married, it had to be in school holidays. And, and coming up to 
uh, it would have been the April school holidays, I knew I don't want to get married in summer because I'm a sweater and I don't want to sweat in the marriage ceremony, right? Even though I totally did. If you ever get a chance to see our video, I'm like almost passing out. Like, I basically got a shower on the altar. Um, <laughs> someone turn the fire sprinklers on, please. No, um, and so I knew that the only kind of window I had was the September, October holidays, right? So, so although I had these extravagant plans, I realized if I didn't ask Rach, like almost within this couple of week window, number one, I wasn't gonna leave us enough time to plan a wedding before I knew we needed to get married in those holidays, right? So my motivating factor was time. And I, I say that to you because in this section of scripture, what we discover about Paul is what his motivating factor is. If we, if we take the overarching context of Philippians 1, 12 through to 30, what we see in Paul is him trying to communicate to the Philippians the one thing that motivates him in life, the one thing that he, he adjusts every action of his life around, the, the one thing that drives why he does things, how he does things, how he views things, how he measures things. We find Paul's one motivating factor and thank God Goodness that for us, Paul's motivating factor was not time, okay? We discover why Paul approaches the life the way he does. And I want to encourage you this morning, I believe that we can learn a great deal about how we could approach life based on the way Paul approaches life. So let us dive in. Uh, I want to give you some overarching structural context, if you will, as we go through. So, so from verse 12 to 30, what we see is kind of two main sections within that passage of Scripture. We see verses 12 to 18. And 12 to 18 is Paul unpacking to the church in Philippi, what is happening now? What is happening in my current circumstance? It's a little bit like, I want to give you a bit of context, what's going on in my world now. This is where I am, prison, uh, blah, 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 unpacks a few things about what is happening now. Verse 19 is the pivot verse. So verse 19 for Paul is where he, he zooms in on a particular theme and, and uses that theme to go from what is happening now to what he hopes will happen in the future. Okay, so if we look at verse 19, we'll see that this is where Paul pivots, right? He speaks of the present and then in verses 20 to 30, he speaks of the future. He speaks of his personal hopes. He actually speaks of the reality of the upcoming decision. You'll notice in a lot of Paul's writing, he doesn't hide behind the reality of difficult circumstance. He doesn't, his, Paul's faith is not pretense. Paul doesn't pretend life is not difficult. Paul doesn't pretend that there is an outcome that, that, that is going to be somewhat suffering and painful. Paul doesn't pretend these things away. No, he addresses them honestly. And this is something that we have to understand about faith. True faith enables us to address something honestly and yet still live in a place of positivity. Okay? And so for Paul, we find out that he has this upcoming decision around his freedom or his death, um, and, but that he actually expects stuff of the Philippians and their future, okay, despite his, because for him, his, his future is actually uncertain. So what we have here is we have Paul, who, although his current position is certain, he knows his future is completely uncertain, and yet he is able to speak with inc incredible clarity because of his framework. And this is what we want to unpack. Let's have a look. Verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You know, I think too often because we live in individualised Christianity at times, we don't realise that our suffering is for someone else's confidence. We don't realise that the way we approach trial and testing in our life can have the effect of giving someone else confidence. We're so consumed at times, myself included, with, with my battle and my struggle and well, I'm lacking confidence and well, I'm in this situation and will God help me out? And God's saying, I will help you out, but what I need you to do right now is, is find some faith in me, in my character and choose to praise in the midst of your circumstance because that's gonna encourage the person three seats down in your row who right now really needs some confidence and they're looking to you. You don't realise it, but they're looking to you and they're seeing you and the way you approach suffering and pain and difficulty and trial and that's going to give them confidence. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I am put in here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing, oh sorry, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Observe Paul's source of joy. Paul's source of joy is not connected to his physical circumstance. Paul's source of joy is, is, is actually not even connected to the motives of other people around him. Paul's source of joy is connected to one thing and one thing only is Christ being glorified and is the gospel being preached. That is the one thing at which Paul establishes his inner world state upon. It is the one thing that he measures all other things against. He's like, you know what? People are preaching the gospel and, and they love me and, and, and it's awesome. But you know what? There's other people that are putting the church out there as doing all these things wrong. But you know what? They're putting the church out there. They're, they're announcing that the church that no one knew about, suddenly the church that people know about. So we need to worry less about people's motives and rejoice in the fact that the name of Jesus is being broadcast on all kinds of mediums around our world. And we need to understand like Paul did, that because God is so big, it actually doesn't matter about the motives of man because God's will is gonna be done in and through everybody, whether or not they want God to look good or not, God's name is gonna be proclaimed. Okay, and so, and so Paul's sense of joy doesn't come from whether people are doing it for the right reasons. Paul's sense of joy comes, well, because, hey, the gospel's still getting preached. Hey, people are still hearing the name of Jesus. People are still being told, hey, hey, Jesus is this real thing. He's so real, I'm gonna complain against him. I'm, I'm gonna argue that he's not real because, because I'm worried that he is. And Paul's like, it doesn't matter their motive. Don't worry about their motive. Is the gospel getting preached? Is the church getting talked about? How is less important because joy and satisfaction are from the spread of the gospel and the glorification of Christ? Even though he's in prison, he can still rejoice. Even though he's bound in chains, he can still rejoice. He can still preach rejoicing. Actually, his treatment is irrelevant. The way he is being treated 
is irrelevant in determining whether or not there is joy in his life. And this is where we need to make sure that we don't mesh the ideas of joy and happiness. Happiness is absolutely an emotional state. It comes from getting things we want, having a great time. Happiness is real. Joy is deeper. Joy comes because of the way we can approach something based on the foundation of our belief system. So I can have joy and not be currently feeling happy. And that is why the joy of the Lord can be my strength. Because if I don't know how to find joy in the midst where there's no happiness, I also won't have strength when I have no happiness. You see, I have to understand that my joy is connected to what I believe about God and what He is able to do. My joy is connected to what I believe is important and imperative in life. My, excuse me. my joy is far deeper than my happiness. And so I can still, if I go into a season where there is difficulty, pain and suffering, I'm not saying we have to put on some fake happiness. That's not authentic. That's not real. That's not what Paul does. But Paul says, I can actually still rejoice because my measure of what is worth rejoicing is, is to do with my God. It's to do with my God. This is where we, we see that he uses this theme to go from now to the future. He says, all this stuff is happening now, and this is why I rejoice. I'm in prison, but I rejoice because it's given me an opportunity to preach Christ. Uh, right now, people are preaching Christ, and it's awesome, so I rejoice. Right now, people are preaching Christ, and it's terrible the way they're doing it, the motives, but I still rejoice because Christ is in preach. The now, he unpacks that, why he rejoices, and then he shifts. Verse 19, it says, and because of this, I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So he takes this idea of rejoicing and he uses it to say that, yes, all of these things and I can rejoice, but also you need to know there's a really uncertain future coming for me. I don't know what's gonna happen, but even in uncertainty, I can rejoice. Even in uncertainty, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. You know, Paul is able to rejoice because he understands the power of community, prayer, and the faithfulness of the Spirit. Paul's capacity to rejoice in an uncertain future, in an unknown circumstance, Paul's capacity to, to rejoice when, 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 let's not make this too real, but like, like when we, maybe we, we lose our job and we have a job uncertainty, or maybe we get a diagnosis where the, where the end is uncertain. Or maybe we're in a, a state in a relationship right now and the future of that relationship looks uncertain. Paul says, because I believe that prayer has power, because I believe in the power of the community when they pray and I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, I will still rejoice in that place of uncertainty because there are things in my world that are certain. Prayer is powerful, God is real, and His Holy Spirit is at work. Verse 19 to 20, we, we've talked about that prayer and the Holy Spirit. It's important here to, to point out two things. First, what if Paul isn't delivered? What, is he, what if he isn't? This is a very real <laughs> uh, situation. Will God have let him down? What about the Philippians and what they will be led to believe about God if Paul is not delivered? I tell, I tell you, it's so often we place our belief in God based on an outcome that we're expecting. And I think we get ourselves into so much difficulty in our faith by placing an expectation on God that perhaps we shouldn't 
expectation of God should be on his character, not based on a, a specific outcome that we're hoping for. I think too often we, in, in trying to do good, we, we, we tell people that we are believing for a certain outcome and don't coach them on, on the consistency of Christ irrespective of outcome. And we leave people in a place where they're now having a crisis of faith because the outcome that we said God was bringing doesn't happen. And therefore, well, what is who questions suddenly arise about God? And this is, this is a little bit what we could perceive that Paul is doing here. What if he isn't delivered? He's telling the, the, the Philippians that he is rejoicing because of his expectation of deliverance. Right, and the second thing is, how can we have a secure joy based in something that is uncertain? How can he base his joy on something that is unknown? He does not know the outcome of the upcoming trial, so is his joy foundationless? Is it, is it just rose-colored glasses that Paul wears? It's just, is he just the eternal optimist that needs a good case of realism in his life that, hey, Paul, the reality here is you're going to face death. You may die, Paul. You're going to go in front of a judge and, and that judge is going to decide whether you go free or you die. That's what's at stake for Paul right now when he's writing this letter. And he has no say in the outcome. I wonder how many times that look back on my life and I realize I've misinterpreted God based on something like a misguided expectation. And I think, I think what we need to understand something here, and I, know I loved kind of studying this scripture for this reason. The word that Paul uses when he speaks of deliverance is, is not necessarily the word that, that we expect. So, I went to a commentary because I don't know Greek um, like Pastor Keith does, but uh, we have great resources available to us. And, and I, I, I read through this commentary and it says that the, the Greek word that Paul uses that translates deliverance, right, where we can read that and think, well, Paul is hoping to get set free and he's given this expectation that he's going to set free to the Philippians. And well, what if that doesn't happen, Paul? What if you don't get set free from prison? What, you're, building, you're building the Philippians up for this, this big disaster in their world. But actually, the word he uses is the word soteria, for my soteria. And if, if you've done a little bit of study, there's this cool word that, that I'm learning in, in my studies, soteriology. Soteriology is a theology of salvation. So when we talk about salvation in church, if you want to sound uh, like, like very intellectual, you can word, use the word soteriology. And so suddenly what we realize is Paul is being very intentional about using a word that he can use to have two meanings. You see, he then, he then realizes, well, I've made this grand statement. And like any kind of letter, you know, you put the big statement and then you spend the next little part of the letter. Oh, this is what I meant by when I said that and, and I meant this. And, and what we see moving on is Paul begins to unpack the reality of this two-sided word that he's used. This word soteria, which means salvation, you see, for Paul, he taps into this, this truth that, that to get set free is being saved, but to die is being saved. 
So what Paul does is he is that because of the way that he views his life, either outcome he wins. Either outcome Paul wins. If if he gets delivered from prison, if he gets saved from prison, then he is able to go on and help the Philippians to progress in their faith and find greater joy as they progress in their faith. But if he is put to death, well, then he receives the accumulation of his faith through salvation and he suddenly gets to be with Christ in heaven. And this is where we arrive at Paul's unpacking of his grand statement about soteria. And we, we see him begin to say, well, to die is gain because I'm saved, but, but to be released is gain as well. It's fruitful labour. So for Paul, he's been, because of the perspective that he lives life from, he is able to go, actually, that whole future is uncertain, but that doesn't matter because I win either way. If I'm set free, I win. If I die, I win. So he is able to find something about his belief and his faith in Christ that enables a situation that is uncertain to be attached to joy and certainty. You see, Paul's choice, which he unpacks, is obviously he desires to be with Christ, but he recognises that there is an absolute value, mainly for the Philippians if he lives. But at the end of the day, since the decision will not be his, the wrestle that he talks about in these passages is actually which one he's going to allow himself to yearn for. Paul actually has no impact on, on the decision of his trial. So through, through the verses of 21 to 24, he is not saying, which one am I most hoping for? He's saying, he's unpacking the wrestle that he has as to which one am I most going to yearn for? Am I most going to yearn for salvation to be fulfilled in my, my death so that I might be with Christ? Or am I going to yearn most to, to be released so that, so that I can go to work with you Philippians to progress your faith and help you find greater joy? The battle for Paul is not which outcome, the battle for Paul is which desire. Okay, so the battle for Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't place the focus of his attention on outcome. He places the focus of attention on what should I desire. And you see, he continues to kind of, he's a bit of an uh, uh, external processor, a bit like me. And he, he externally processes in his letter and he goes on to say, you see, if I measure the value of each, I, I, what I see is that the greatest value in, in the eyes of God is actually probably if I'm released uh, because then I can come and be with you and help you. And since that carries greater value than me just passing from this life, because the communal value of the gospel has more sense in me coming to you rather than my individualized desire to be with Christ, because Paul has placed community above individuality, right? So because that carries more value, well, then it makes sense for me to yearn to be released. And this is, if, if you read this, this is Paul's thinking he's unpacking on paper. And what it, what, it, what it outlines for us is actually just how Christ-centric Paul is. Just how singularly focused Paul is on Christ being glorified and the gospel being preached. He, he, he filters everything by this. This is Paul's choice of yearning is thus dictated by what he considers to be the most valuable, not just to him, but to them which is why he expects to be freed, because he considers that this will be the most beneficial for the glorification or the boasting of Christ when he returns to Philippians. This is his conclusion, verse 25 to 26. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain. 
And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Uh, It's so mind-boggling to me that his wrestle of which one to desire most ends up being dictated by what is going to be best for somebody else rather than what is going to be best for him. So that by being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. That because of what happens in my life, you might boast in Jesus. Because of what you see Christ do through me might encourage you to press into a place in your relationship with Jesus that would cause you to glorify God. That the way I approach my life, that the way I approach my current situation and my potentially uncertain future might cause you to glorify God for how good He is. Paul is demonstrating, excuse me. Paul is demonstrating just how deeply his filter of does this glorify God really go? He's indicating that he desires the same filter, the same perspective, the same measure of of life and its value to be developed in the Philippians and that they would progress in their faith and that that progression would work to develop the same focus and filter of success and source of joy that he lives from. In fact, that's his great concern over the kind of the whole book of Philippians. His great concern is, is the maturity and the progression of the Philippian church. And, and I wonder if we can consider that perhaps that is the context for the letter for us still today. That in reading the letter that Paul wrote, there would be a translated concern for our progress. That as a community, we would progress in our relationship with Christ. That we would deepen in our relationship with Christ. That that as a community, we would move slowly but surely towards a place where our focus, our measure, our desire, the way we approach life, would move towards that place that Paul had of singularly about Christ being glorified. In other parts of of Paul's writing, you know, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Translate that, live as I live. As I have developed perspectives and values and focuses that dictate my life, you do the same. And I just wonder whether in the modern church today, We have allowed other things to creep into that space. You see, for Paul, to live is for Christ. But if I, if I was completely honest reading this and preparing this, what, what I began to realize is that, that for, for me and, and perhaps for us to live is for Christ and. It is for Christ and work. It is for Christ and wealth creation. It is for Christ and friendship. It is for Christ and experiences. We live in a day and age where the experience is so elevated, is so idolized in our world that we have whole generations that are just chasing experience. To live is for Christ and relationships, leisure, travel. And it's not that these are bad things, but they have to take second fiddle to the purpose of Christ being glorified and the gospel being preached in our lives. You know, as, as Andrew said, we're, we're sharing uh, as a staff a particular commentary that we're reading around this study. And Gordon Fee shares his concerns 
uh, about the postmodern church, that we've allowed a self-gratifying life to become a greater pursuit than Christ's glorification. That really, that challenged me. That really challenged me. And I began to ask, well, how do we change? What can help us? Because left to our own desires, left to our own devices, we are all prone to seek temporal pleasure. Let's be honest, right? The temporary is often far more real to us than the idea of eternity, right? That for many Christians today, and I would say me included, life after death has become the positive appendix to a present-focused life rather than it being the lens which focuses our life. You know what? This was Paul's key. The way in which Paul was able to maintain this singular focus was that he had a lens called divine perspective. Paul had, had such an encounter with Christ that the realities of heaven began to dictate his life on earth. He, he, he unpacks this in this idea of the whole of his theology around the now and the not yet, except that Paul lived as if the not yet was in the now. He lived as if he was a citizen of heaven now on earth. I think so often we approach life as a citizen of earth, hoping that elements of heaven might come in from time to time. When the truth is that right now we are citizens of heaven. And if we could allow the Holy Spirit to, to begin to move us ever so gently, let's not have an expectation that we're going to go from where we are to suddenly the perspective of Paul overnight, okay? That would be setting you up for disappointment. But, but what if the Holy Spirit could move us a little bit? What if we could begin to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to bring a divine perspective that the eternal mattered so much to us that it dictated how we approach the present? That the reality of heaven and, and, and life after this earth would dictate maybe the way in which we approached the next job that we went for. Like maybe we just say to God, 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 maybe, maybe let's not measure which job I want based on how it's going to enable me to, to, to get a bigger house. Maybe if, if God, you would direct me because I want my next job just to give me a little bit more opportunity to glorify you to preach your gospel? What if we made this practical enough today that it did genuinely affect our life and move us a little bit? What if, our, what if, what if young adults this morning, what if you said to God, God, I, actually, I want you to help me choose my spouse, not the one with the six pack, right? Not the one with the bikini ready body, but the one that over 10, 20, 30 years is gonna help our marriage glorify God is going to help our marriage pursue the things that God has for our life, that, that Christ's glorification would dictate those decisions, that Christ's glorification would dictate maybe the city that we move to. I've, I've seen so many people chase a job out of the calling that God has in their life because, because, because it just looks better. And it's a decision that we've just slipped into making without a divine perspective. What if the divine perspective just a little bit snuck into our world and moved us a little bit further, progressed us a bit further in a, into a place where our joy can begin to be found in, a, in something that is certain. You know, I don't know if this message has been speaking to you. I, I'm telling you, it challenged me so much. 
uh, preparing it because I realised how many decisions. And I mean, I, I'm not talking about what we wear each morning. And I don't, you know, let's not let's not go there. That I'm talking about. Let's let's begin with the big decisions of life. Let's begin with the the really big things and say, God, I just I want to get the big things right. I want to let the divine perspective, the way that that this might be able to have an impact in someone else's eternity affect how I approach just this big decision. You know, the thing was that Paul knew that it was through prayer and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, I, just, I would like to pray for you if this, is, this message is speaking to you. I'm just going to ask if just, just stand up. Um, if you feel like you're like, you know what, God, I do. I, I would like your Holy Spirit this morning just to move me a little bit further towards a divine perspective. I know I have it at times. I know I approach things at times like that, but I know there's areas that I don't. And God, this morning, I just want you to do that. I'm just, I can't do it on my own, in my, in my own godless humanity. I can't. But, but when you intervene, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can begin to renew my mind, begin to change the way I think about things. So if that's you here this morning, just as we come to a, a close in the message, I'd love it if you would respond by standing. I'll be the first one to say, I'm standing. I need God to do this in me. I need God to begin to outwork the way that I approach my world from a divine perspective. The decisions that I make week to week, day to day, to live those with a, how is this going to help Christ be glorified? Father, I want to pray right now for every person standing. I thank you so much for their desire, God, to have you move in their world. Lord, I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you begin to go to work. You begin to do what you promised you would do by transforming us through the renewing of our mind. I pray you just begin to wash over our thinking the next time we come up against one of these big decisions, it wouldn't be looked at from such a personal viewpoint. But God, we would just have the Holy Spirit guide us and move us to consider how might Christ be glorified in this? How might the gospel be preached in this? Holy Spirit, we want to acknowledge we need you so much in this world. We need you in our life. We need you in this community. We know that revival salvation, all of these things are not by strength or might, but they are by your Spirit. So God, I pray, come and have your way this morning. Come and have your way in every life, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I tell you, if you're not standing, maybe you could join those that are standing. We're going we're to finish just praising one last time. Is that okay? We're gonna, we're just, I'm going to invite the team to come out. I think they're ready to go. We're just going to praise one more time. We might just do like a little chorus bridge, something. Joel's going to have it all sorted. But I thought maybe we could praise. You know, Paul found an opportunity to rejoice no matter what. An opportunity to rejoice no matter what. So let's practice that this morning. Let's rejoice no matter what. In certainty or uncertainty, in suffering, in pain, in success, whatever it is, let's, let's praise. Jared, he's got it. I'll leave it to you. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au.
or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.